the number one probably is just not having a high enough bar on differentiation, not having a high enough bar on whether the best founders, they'll see the best companies or what the best founders will pick them, where the differentiation still feels incremental and not disruptive. And I think that's where some of those founders just have a harder time fundraising, right? Because if you see from an LP's perspective, they're just getting inundated way the LP pitches and I think pitches have to stand out for them to be able to underwrite that because they know only then will the founders you know pick them unless you obviously have a celebrity status or something that's different but I think for the rest of us right that are doing good work and trying to build a franchise over the long run I do think the bar has to be pretty high because it's got to be a pretty competitive space incremental thing is just having a harder and harder time getting getting funded another day another amazing guest on the pod today we had Gaurav Jain Gaurav is the co-founder of A4 Capital. A4 Capital is one of the largest venture funds, 300 million in AUM, dedicated to super early stage investments. Before founding A4 Capital, Gaurav was an investor at a VC fund called Founders Collective. And before that, he was one of the first product managers for Android. In this conversation, we covered various topics, starting from the founding story of A4 Capital, the importance of portfolio construction, and how one should think about modeling their fund, how to fundraise, building relationship with LPs is a long-term game. The hardest part of the journey is getting to the first close, how to stay relevant by reinventing yourself, his take on the Indian tech ecosystem, who is he outside of work and much more. Now I bring you Gaurav Jain. Gaurav, I'm excited to have you on the pod. I am excited to be here. Thank you for having me. How's the kids? <laughs> kids? Now I got two, two under two, which is, uh, you know, I don't think you have kids, so you don't know what I'm talking about, but uh, it's a lot of fun, but a lot of work. We'll dive right into it. Uh, how did you first get into angel investing and what was the founding story of A4? Yeah, I look, it's a, it's a bit of a meandering path um, and, and I'll take a slightly longer version of this. I grew up in India, uh, you know, studied, you know, the, the path was software engineering, you know, IIT, hopefully I get in and sort of, you know, get a job at Microsoft in America. That was kind of like all I could see growing up in the, in the 90s in, uh, in there, which at the time was, you know, arguably a tier three city. I mean, now I think it's become tier two as now a capital of a, of a new state. But um, at, at the time, it was a small, small city. You know, the family then moved to, to Canada, actually, when I was in high school. Uh, so I was 15 when the family moved to Toronto, finished high school there, went to Waterloo to study software engineering like a good Indian kid. Uh, you know, did a bunch of different uh, co-op terms or internships, worked at Amazon and Morgan Stanley, worked in Singapore, worked in London, worked in different places. And I think coming closer to graduation came to the realization that uh, even though I entered Waterloo thinking I was going to become a software engineer, I think I realized kind of halfway through that I was a good but not a great software engineer. A lot of my classmates were far smarter than, than I was. Um, and I wanted to start something. I wanted to build a company. I didn't want a job per se. So a couple of buddies of mine from software engineering class, we started a company uh, that eventually became venture-backed. So that was my first exposure to venture actually as a founder myself. Frankly, until we were told by somebody that we should go raise venture funding, I'd never heard of VCs, angels, you know, any of that stuff. I didn't really know this concept existed. 
Um, and actually, I'll, I'll share a quick anecdote. It's a bit of a tangent, but when I was when I was graduating from business school, my uh, my uncle who lives in India he came to visit, and I explained to him what I do in venture, and you know, we give million dollar checks and blah blah blah. So company, you know, startup founders can build their companies. And he like paused and looked at me and said, "Hold on a second. So what collateral do you get for this money?" And I was like. No, actually, we don't get no collateral. No, I don't. I don't have their house and mortgage or their car. We just write these million dollar checks and kind of hope for the best. Um, so this idea of venture was actually quite non-obvious to me, especially growing up in India, where you know at the time there wasn't much of a, a venture capital community. Um, but anyway, so that was my first exposure as a founder. We raised multiple rounds of funding. Um, that brought me to the Android team in the early days as a product manager with the mandate to help grow market share for the platform. At the time when Google found itself competing with Apple and iPhone, um, you know, it was a fun journey. I, I was there as we went from less than a million total users to about a million new users a day by the time I left. Um, so it was, it was a fun ride into business school. And then and then I kind of flipped over to, to venture, right? As in business school, it was like, what do I want to do next? Do I want to go back and start a company? Do I want to become a product manager somewhere else? Or, you know, this venture thing was always in the back of my mind. It's something I was intrigued by having been a founder. So started working kind of an internship at this fund called Founder Collective. I really liked the, the team there because it was two of them who started the fund. They're still investing out of fund one, but they were both founders and operators first. So I really connected with them at that level. Um, and they brought me on as the first investor to the team as of the two of them. I joined them full time and I graduated from uh, from HBS, which is where I went to business school. Um, was there for about four and a half years total. Um, you know, was lucky to invest in some really great companies, and then that became the genesis for us to start a four because I wanted to invest even earlier than what I was doing at Founder Collective. So with with a four now, we're investing in literally founders, idea stage, inception stage, looking for their first kind of one to three million dollars. We can lead that round and get them into business and get them get them to to you know early sense of product market fit. Got it. And thereafter, uh, how did you meet, uh, you know, your partner at A4 and what was the founding story? Yeah. So my, my partner, Anamitra Banerjee, also from India, she grew up in Calcutta. Um, you know, he's got a similar story. He, he came to the U.S. For, for business school and he was the first product manager at Twitter. So he was one of the first 25 employees there. And we met because he had left Twitter to become an EIR at Foundation Capital because he was thinking of starting a company. And I was a scout for Foundation Capital for Harvard and MIT when I was at business school at Harvard. Um, and we met at a dinner hosted by one of the GPs at Foundation. You know, they wanted the scouts to meet, you know, the, the EIRs. And we hit it off and, uh, and really got along maybe partially because we both were first generation immigrants. We're both product managers, both software engineers. And both were not in venture, right? When everybody else was kind of already a, already very much in venture. Uh, so we stayed in touch and actually just did deals together, didn't really formally start working together until four years after we initially met, uh, which is when we started the fund. I moved back to San Francisco and then we, you know, we raised fund one in, in 2016. And the rest is history is the same. Got it. So today you are managing over $300 million. So let's uh, start with the first fund. Uh, how is the process like? Meaning, you know, you got the deck, uh, now you have a portfolio construction in place. Now, uh, next step is to raise capital. What was the process like? Was it easy for you to raise capital? Uh, if not, uh, how was the journey like? Yeah, it, it was not easy at all. And um, it, it never is for most people, right? Uh, and uh, because ultimately, look, for fund one, you're trying to sell yourself. 
right, is really the product. I mean, raising money for a company, which I've done before, is hard. But this, in some ways, is harder because, like, you're selling, you know, your, yourself as a story. It's like, give me money to invest. Give me money in a blind pool. I'll invest in companies that I can't tell you which ones they are, what they're going to do, who the founders will be. But trust me, they're going to be good companies. I mean, that's a it's a pretty big leap of faith if you really think about it, right? And it's especially the first time fund with like no track record for for the fund. I mean, we had a track record from our previous firms, but nothing with the four specifically. Um, and it was not easy. I'd say like uh, the biggest thing where we spent a lot of time was around our story and differentiation, right? Like why does a four need to exist in a world where there's so many funds already, right? And there is no dearth of capital, at least again in the US, like I think of my context, right? Mostly focused in the US, mostly software, you know, early stage. There are a lot of good options for founders. Like why should a four really exist, right? Who are the founders that we're going to be able to source and convince to take our money? Why will they take our money? And like, you know, what, what is our thesis, the way we see the world? Is that different or is it the same, same as everybody else? So we spent a lot of time thinking about that um, and because we wanted to convince to ourselves, too, that, they, that we should go do this for the next foreseeable future, decade, two decades, three decades, God knows how long, right? Like this was all we could see um, in front of us because starting a fund is a very, very big commitment. Right. And we can talk about, you know, why that is, but it's a massive commitment. Um, so so we wanted to convince to ourselves. We spent a lot of time, months kind of thinking through the strategy, iterating on the narrative, the pitch, the deck. Um, and then we started to talk to a few LPs. Both of us obviously had gotten to know LPs through our previous firms. Right. So that helped. That was sort of our first port of call, you know, with the blessing of the partners that we worked with. Um, and we shared the story. We shared our track record. That was the other thing that was important to LPs to see is, hey, what investments have you made? Sure, it was part of another firm, but at least let me understand, like, what have you gotten involved with? Let me. And the other really, really big bucket was reference calls, right? Uh, reference calls with your former GPs that you worked with, reference calls with founders that you invested in, like really just trying to understand the person, which makes sense in retrospect, again, because they're investing in us as people. That is really ultimately the product. So they want to just triangulate or understand who this person is that I'm, I'm potentially going to back. Um, I'd say the hardest uh, you know, part of the journey is getting to the first close because you know, LPs, you know, rightfully so, they're inundated with a lot of you know, fund pitches, new fund one pitches. So, so they're trying to figure out, should I spend time even diligencing this or not? Right. Because a lot of funds never get to first close. A lot of funds kind of start off with like, here's a strategy and we want to start a fund, but they realize it's going to be actually really hard to fundraise, not getting any traction, and they kind of move on. Right. So LPs don't want to really invest time until they kind of know this is for real. Once you get to first close and you start to make some investments, and there's still some room left in the fund. That's when L a lot of LPs go like, oh, well, interesting. Like, this is going to happen. Let me dedicate some resources on this. So getting to first close, finding your first few believers is the hardest. And it's also hard because, again, if you think from an LP perspective, right, there's actually not a lot of FOMO, right? Because they know first-time fund probably won't be oversubscribed. So whether I move fast now or wait a little bit, doesn't really matter. The deal terms are the same, right? Whether I'm the first dollar in or the last dollar in, kind of get the same deal. Um, and, you know, there's no like, oh, I have to fight for a board seat or a lead slot. Like, you know how like we have FOMO as in, as GPs because I'm like, well, if I don't move fast, maybe I won't get an allocation to this round because there's a limited amount of allocation. Or if I don't 
you know, move fast. I mean, we're ownership sensitive. I need to get my ownership. So if they commit to a whole bunch of investors and even there's allocation left, it might not be enough, right? So there's a whole bunch of reasons why you look at FOMO as GPs. LPs don't really have that, especially for first-time fund managers. So convincing somebody when there is like no real strong incentive to be the first ones to commit for them to commit, that's definitely hard, right? But we were very lucky. We got a few investors to commit that got us to a first close, which was just over half the fund. And then, well, then we were in business. You know, then you started making investments because you close some close the fund. You've got some capital, and you can keep fundraising in parallel. And it took us a few more months after that to kind of finish it for finish the entirety of the fund. And we were lucky. We were about fifteen percent oversubscribed for fund one, and we've been similarly oversubscribed for fund two and three. Uh, so we've been lucky with the fundraise. But man, I'd say for Every yes, there was like 10 no's, right? And I think at some point you become immune to hearing no's. And the other, the other thing I would also point out is that there were LPs who passed on fund one, who actually ended up investing in fund two. And there were LPs who passed on fund one and two and ended up investing in fund three. So, you know, when they say like, look to build block relationships, there's a lot of merit to that because we've been beneficiaries of folks that, you know, initially passed that I was like, ah, you know, is it a really waste of my time to build these relationships? Turns out it was not. Right. And I think a lot of these folks, you know, um, sometimes say like, OK, I'm not really quite there for fund one. Let me see how this goes. And then maybe I can commit for fund two. So look to build long term relationship with LPs because, you know, this is very much a long term game. Got it. So uh, two parts to this question. One, uh, was there a process that you followed to keep the LPs engaged, the ones that had passed in fund one or fund two and they ended up investing? Secondly, if, you know, you said uh, your fund one, two and three, they were oversubscribed. If you were to pick one thing that has worked best for you uh, and, the by, uh, and the byproduct of it is that the funds have been over, oversubscribed. Yeah, I'd say if there was one thing, it'd be communication and transparency and, and sort of uh, being very open with existing and new LPs on what's working, what's not working. Uh, in fact, we do a quarterly call in addition to an annual LP meeting. So most managers will just do an annual LP meeting, right? Where they'll get the LPs in together and like, you know, talk through the, what the fund performance and strategy. We actually do that, but also do a quarterly call on top of that, right? Because we believe once a year is just not enough cadence to really keep everybody abreast. Um, and there we go, you know, deep on like, here's what's working, not working in the last quarter, some new investments we made, companies that may be coming up for air for uh, next round in the next quarter. So like that level of transparency, LPs really like, because I think a lot of funds are black box, right? It's like you, you make a commitment and you, you barely ever hear back from, from the GPs. Um, I think that is, is, is a feedback we get from LPs quite a bit. And again, being transparent about highlights, lowlights, what's working, mistakes we've made, what we've learned, things we could have done better. I think LPs kind of like that iteration because then, because look, LPs are looking to make a commitment for the long run, right? They don't want to invest in just one fund. They want to invest in multiple funds. And hopefully, you know, this becomes the next big fund, next, you know, successful fund. And they could say, hey, I was an early LP and like my my slot is guaranteed because I was an early LP and like so on and so forth. Like that is an LP success metric. Right. It's like they pick the next whatever, pick your favorite fund very early on, like that in the LP land, in addition to performance is like obviously what stands out. So I think I think giving them that comfort that you're thinking in that direction, you're executing to that plan, you're really self-aware, I think really helps helps LP and LPs. And, you know, a lot of times we invite prospective LPs to some of these quarterly calls in our annual LP, right, even though they're not LPs in the fund. We're like, look, we're open kimono, right? 
right? You should know not just like the sales pitch, right? But also the board meeting essentially, right? Like if you think of us as, as investors, like, you know, when you hear a pitch, when you see a pitch deck, that's like very salesy, right? When you go to the board meeting, that's when you get the, the good, bad and ugly on the company, right? So it's like, can we give that level of transparency to, to LPs? Because we feel, you know, very comfortable uh, in our skin and we feel comfortable with, with, with you know, being, being transparent. So I think that's, that's one thing that's really stood out for, um, for, for LPs, uh, you know, I think building those relationships, keep, you know, not, not being transactional, right. Uh, as I mentioned, like there are LPs who passed on one and two and then came in on, on the third. Sometimes you have to like, you know, swallow your ego. Cause you're like, I, if I hear no the third time, that's, gonna, that's, that's a lot, but you know, look, you still, I think you have to be at some level, um, uh, you know, a little bit, um, a little bit divorced from the fact that this is, you know, this is ultimately business. And just because they said, no, again, it's not a judgment on us. Maybe it wasn't a fit for their strategy and so on and so forth. Because we say no a lot, right? But for every hundred companies we look at, I think we invest in 0.3 of them. So like, I say no way, way more than I say yes. And so I think we kind of, you know, it's always hard to be on the other side, but I think it, it sort of helps that, you know, we get to also practice investing to to be able to, you know, when we're on the other side as, as fundraising, um, as, as fundraising GPs. I think those are probably the few things that, that stick out. Got it. And uh, so it's communication and you being empathetic at the same time. You understand, you know, no now doesn't mean that it would be the same, uh, you know, answer later on. If you keep showing the uh, work, the progress, the traction, same as, you know, as you're tracking companies. Uh, and... Gaurav, we talked about, you know, the importance of entry price. Uh, why don't we talk about, you know, the importance of portfolio construction and how should one model a fund? Let's say I'm a, you know, an emerging fund manager and I'm, I'm, I'm all in and I want to do a fund. How should I think about modeling my fund? Yeah, look, I think portfolio construction is something that's fluid, right? In the sense that as your fund size changes, as you're in, you know, fund one, two, three, four, or 15, like that can somewhat evolve over time. But I will say this, I think it's steady state. If you think from a first principles perspective, you know, LPs pay us and invest in our funds to produce outsized returns. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, uh, research has shown that AngelList, which is arguably an index of early stage tech venture, is actually a top quartile fund. I.e., if you invested in every company, you know, on AngelList, you'd be a top quartile, you know, you'd have top quartile performance, which, by the way, means a few things. One, three fourths of managers are getting paid to underperform the index, which is which is, you know. Not not great. Um, and, and by the way, it's actually not too dissimilar to what we see in the public markets, right? And the public markets, passive index funds actually outperform vast majority of active managers and mutual funds, which is why I think mutual fund industry has been under pressure. Um, so I think you see a similar dynamic in, in the private markets. Um, so so LPs should only invest in you as a manager over many vintages if they believe that you can outperform the index, right? And then, so not that doesn't mean top quartile, that actually means like top decile or ideally top 5% or top 1%, right? Of venture managers for that, for that vintage. Well, how do you get there, right? I think there's 
two things you have to do to get there. One is, of course, you've got to be in the in the great companies, right? It is a power law business, i.e., a few companies, you know, generate majority of the returns. And you know, for curious folks, you can read more about power law, you know, uh, separately. But it very much does exhibit power law dynamics. Um, so you have to be in some of those outliers, right? Yeah, otherwise, the venture model does not work. Number one. Number two, I do think ownership matters a lot. So not only do you have to be in those companies, but you have to own a significant portion of those companies relative to your fund size. Obviously, smaller the fund, the smaller the ownership can work. But I do think you have to, you know, have concentrated portfolio, which means relatively high ownership for your fund size and get into those best companies. Because only then can you truly outperform an index, right? Otherwise, it's really, really hard to be able to beat the index, i.e. angel list, and certainly, you know, um, you know, uh, be 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 worthy of LP commitments over and over again. So, so first principles, outliers, right? Really believe in power law, and then like optimize for high ownership. I think I think those two things matter. That being said, um, you know, uh, building a fund is like building a business over time, right? The product that what may look like on day one may be very different than what it looks like a year out, five years out, 10 years out. The go-to-market strategy could be different. The customer could evolve. Pricing can evolve. So many things evolve in companies. Similarly, I think funds can evolve too, right? And I think initially in the first few vintages, you have to demonstrate that you deserve to exist, right? That you that the world wants and needs your fund and you as a manager. How do you demonstrate that? I think you demonstrate that by access. Are the best founders you know, willing to take your capital? Even if it's like small allocation, but they're willing to take your capital and, and you have to demonstrate that, you know, are the two variables that I talked about, at least one of them, which is I can, I can get into the power law companies, right? The outliers. And then over time, as you, as you demonstrate success and you scale the fund size and so on and so forth, then you start to optimize for ownership as well. Right. And that's when I think you can truly have the ingredients of what it takes to be top 10% fund, top 5% fund. Um, so think, anyway, that's sort of first principles thinking of portfolio construction, and then you can kind of work backwards on 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 how to like actually construct the fund based on your your fund size. You know, I, I, the other thing I'd say is like reserves are also important, right? Because in your best companies, you want to be able to defend your ownership, right? So you need to be able to reserve the funds for that. And then the second thing I'd say is. Um, as we've as evident from the last couple of years, the world doesn't just go up and to the right, can also go down, you know, and then can stay down for a while before it goes back again, up again. And you want to be able to defend ownership in your best companies when the chips are down, right? And um, there 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 are already happening recaps, you know, pay to plays, so on and so forth. You gotta reserve some capital where in your best positions in those times you can still be able to to defend your defend your ownership, so I think you have to be thoughtful about that as well. Because again, your 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 job is not just to deploy capital, but also like you know protect the LP's interests, protect your positions, and and not just buy, but also sell, right? And sell at the right price at the right time and the right kind of ownership. Um, so I think I think you know best managers exhibit that level of thoughtfulness, and LP's LP's look for that. But again, if the first few vintages you haven't you're still iterating. I think that's okay, but there should be a path to get there. Got it. And uh, Gaurav, you know, whether it's sports, politics, business, or anything, 
uh, one has to reinvent to stay relevant. How do you right. at A4 think about uh, reinventing to stay relevant, not just stay relevant, also, you know, uh, striving uh, ahead? Yeah, you know, we take a take a lot of inspiration from our portfolio founders, to be honest. Um, you know, the one thing I've learned, I've been doing this for 11 and a half years, early stage venture, um, is that when I draw kind of lines of common patterns across the best portfolio companies I've invested in, or the ones that I haven't done so well there is no pattern i can find in terms of like where they went to school or like if there was like an iq test how high their iq was or um you know even who they raised from or how they how much money they raised like there, there's some correlation but it's like fairly weak i think the one common pattern that i have found is just how willing they are to like iterate and and like be really self-critical and really like lean on the customer on like does the customer really care about my product or not? Are they willing to pay for my product? Are they willing to use my product? If not, why not? Like let's keep iterating. Let's go back to the drawing board. Let's like, you know, just like that cycle has to be as as short as possible. So you just get a lot of shots on goal. And then eventually you kind of figure it out, right? So like sometimes some of our portfolio companies started off in a market that we were like not so jazzed about, right? But they quickly realized that that was actually not a good market and then eventually put it into something, a really good market, right? So like, that's why I can't even say like the common pattern is like market size because like the best founders figure out the market pretty quickly is not a good one. And and they find something that's that's much, much more exciting. So we, we take a similar kind of approach with, with the four is like, look, we started off with a hypothesis around, it was pre-seed for us, right? This idea that there's a gap in the market where there were very few funds willing to write a meaningful check, you know, upwards of a million dollars, pre-traction, pre-product, pre-revenue, right? There are a few options, mostly like, you know, accelerators like YC, you know, who have, you know, the terms are pretty, uh, pretty aggressive or like, you know, um, you know, angels and stuff, but not many, not many other, other options, right? Um, so, um, so we said there's a gap in the market. That's the hypothesis we started off with. Um, but, uh, but we've evolved over, over time, right? In terms of our, 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 one example is, you know, we actually started off with a portfolio construction where we were going to write small checks across many companies because we were like, wow, we're doing pre-seeds, must be really high risk. And like, hence we should kind of diversify our risk. Then quickly we realized that like, it, our best companies go from pre seed to series A. So like, it's hard to increase ownership at that price. So like, we should, if we have conviction, we do the work, we believe in these founders, believe in these companies, we should just like really go all in and write a much bigger check and build a more concentrated portfolio. But that was like done mid-flight, right? And we were comfortable with changing the model, changing the portfolio construction, went back to LPs and said, this is what we're going to do moving forward. Um, and there's examples like that across the board. I mean, if you look at the number of initiatives we launched over the last few years, it's it's for people in the venture industries is a little overwhelming, right? Because like most GPs, it's like they do the same old thing every day. You know, look at their inbox, what deals came through, do some diligence, invest it on boards, blah, blah, blah. But we've like, we, we, launch, we, we run the Pre-Seed Summit, which is like the industry meeting kind of event for, for uh, founders at this stage. We've had founders of... DoorDash and, and PayPal and, and Stitch Fix and you know all these companies coming to speak. Uh, we just launched a founder residence program where we're going like negative one to zero, right? So like where we're helping founders build conviction in their ideas. We ran a program called Angel the Fund Manager where we're helping angel investors raise their first time funds. We ran a program called Zero to One. We were we were helping founders kind of get their company off the ground. And there's probably another dozen different initiatives we've run over the last few years. Some 
we ran as a hypothesis, realized it didn't work, we canned it, we moved on. Some have worked really well and we've stuck to it and we've expanded them. So there were constantly this experimentation mode and internally the marching orders for the team are, if you have a good idea, pass it by the team, unless it's like a crazy, stupid idea, we're probably going to green light it and then you run with it, you own it, take it, you know, run it all the way and then share kind of the learnings with the team. And if you want it, if it makes sense, let's go expand it, put more resources. If not, then we move on. And the team has an incredible amount of latitude to experiment, try different things. And, 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 you know, there's going to be no judgment if things don't, things don't work. So I think if we create that kind of culture of experimentation, which again, we're just walking the talk because we're learning from our best founders who also have that similar kind of experimentation, you know, mentality. <clears throat> so it's it's not about uh, ten thousand hours. It's about ten thousand iterations. Yeah, you, totally right. But I think the question is like, how much can you achieve in ten thousand hours? Right. If you if you are working linearly, you have a certain level of like learnings, and if you are just constantly iterating, again with very short you know cycle times, you're just going to make so much more progress given the same amount of time. Right. So you have to put in the hours. I think there's no two ways about it. Because again, nine women cannot produce a baby in a month, right? So like we cannot accelerate how many experiments we can run or how fast we can run. There's only there's only it takes a certain amount of time to put these things up, get them out there, you know, run them, get feedback, and then learn from it. So you know, we do our best to move fast, but but it's only that much we can do. But I I, I do think having that mentality just changes the output at the end of the ten thousand hours. Yeah, uh, and Gaurav, you know, you've been a uh, first time fund manager at some point, you also run a program where you help, you know, first time fund managers raise capital or uh, even do a fund uh, the right way. What do you think are the top mistakes uh, that first time fund manager makes? Um, I'd say the, um, the number one probably is just not having a high enough bar on differentiation, right? Uh, not having a high enough bar on whether the best founders, they'll see the best companies or whether the best founders will pick them, right? Where the differentiation still feels incremental and not, you know, disruptive. Uh, and I think that's where some of those founders just have a harder time fundraising, right? Because if you see from an LP's perspective, they're just getting inundated way the LP pitches and I think pitches have to stand out for them to be able to underwrite that because they know only then will the founders you know pick them unless you obviously have a celebrity status or something that's different but I think for the rest of us right that are doing good work and trying to build a franchise for the long run I do think the bar has to be pretty high because it's gotten to be a pretty competitive space right and the incremental thing is just having a harder and harder time getting getting funded um, I think the second thing is probably not internalizing how long of big of a commitment this is, right? Uh, I love being a founder of a fund now and building that, th building the franchise, but I, I don't know if there's like a binary answer of like, that is the only way most folks should go. There's also like, if you can join a great platform where you don't have to worry about fundraising and all the other overhead of building a firm, maybe that is the right answer for a lot of folks, right? Because they're really good at investing. And they don't want to deal with all the overhead that comes with building a firm. And I spend a, unfortunately, a disproportionate amount of time on like fundraising, LP management. You know, it's just like 
firm operation stuff and building the team, mentoring the team. There's a lot of stuff, right? That takes away from the investing part of the, the job. And I think you have to be truthful to yourself, right? And what, what do you really want to do? Do you want to just be an investor? And I say just, it's not easy to be a great investor, but like, is that what's where your passion is? Or do you want to build a firm around that, which will take away some time, right? Maybe a lot of time initially from being an investor and, and like just internalizing that trade-off is important. And at A4 Gaurav, uh, you invest uh, globally. What's, you know, what's your uh, take on the Indian tech ecosystem? And I'm from India, I'm a founder, I want to raise capital. Uh, if I were to raise capital from uh, A4, uh, from Gaurav, here are a few things that I can keep in mind. Uh, what would those be? Yeah, you know, while we're based in San Francisco and very much focused on, on North America, we do invest internationally. In fact, I've made two investments so far in, in India. Um, you know, I would love to invest in way more companies than that. It's obviously an exciting uh, market for so many reasons. And obviously folks in India know, so I don't need to preach to the choir and why it's such a special market, especially, you know, ex-US is probably the most exciting market um, to be investing in as a as a as an early stage VC. Um, so and for us, you know, it's all comes from the same bucket, right? We don't have a separate international fund. We're not gonna write, you know, small call options. So when we invest in India, it's coming from the core portfolio, it's a core investment. We're writing a check of the same size as we would for a SF based company. Um, I think for us, obviously, the question, you know, the bar will be higher in some ways for a founder based in India because we're always asking the question, why am I so lucky to see this deal when there's other great investors in in India? So, you know, we look for more of a network based introduction where, you know, I could say, oh, here's a, for example, I invested in a company out of India um, where I got the introduction through a founder who I invested in who's based in the US. But you went to IIT with the founder of this company based out of India that I invested in. And it was like, look, he's a buddy of mine back from IIT, and I really like him. He's not really raising yet, but he's thinking he's running his company. You're one of the first ones to see the deal, right? So there I can kind of answer the question of why am I so lucky to see it? But a lot of other times, obviously, you know, a bit more, bit more skeptical. You know, I think it's the same kind of questions we ask, you know, our other investors we make, right? Is this the right team? Do they have that level of authenticity in terms of the use case, right? Where they were doing something else, stumbled upon this opportunity or this problem to solve and then now they want to go off and solve it or, or they did they read something in TechCrunch this morning and said oh you know this sounds like a big market let me go start that company it can work sometimes much harder we feel like we look for more you know that authentic trajectory you know ideally one of the founders is technical so you know they, they could build a product and get that up and running you know within the founding team itself um you know an interesting insight a non-obvious insight on the market you know what a lot of people call earned secret, right? What do they know about the market and the use case? It's not obvious to to a lot of other folks. Sometimes even inside the inside the space. So again, you look for some of those things. Obviously, the trend lines matter. So there's obviously amazing, incredible trend lines in India across so many things. Um, so you know, there's there's tons and tons of opportunity. Um, but I say the best way to get in front of us, obviously, is to get an introduction. We're fairly accessible. Lots of friends in, in the local VC ecosystem. Obviously, now we've got a portfolio in India, and there's probably many other ways to get to us. Um, you know, there's also an alpha program that we run, so you know, you can just go on our on our website and also apply for for funding because 
you know, one thing we realized was that, you know, while we have a great network for inbound, uh, you know, we want to make it easier for folks that we don't, are not directly connected to us to get in front of us. You know, we get hundreds of applications through that. So obviously, it's a little bit, we go through every single one of them. It's a little bit harder for us to obviously, uh, you know, sometimes pinpoint exactly where, where there's gold. But, you know, we go through every single application and we made investments out of that program as well. So, you know, feel free to apply there as well. Um, but, you know, otherwise, we're very much open to business to, to, to India. And I think there'll be some great companies built there. Got it. Love it. Uh... Looking forward to seeing you doing more deals in India in the future. Uh, and Gaurav, with this, we'll uh, switch gears. My co-pilot in the back, his name is Alfonso, and he wants to get in. He got some uh, you know, questions for you. So he's asking, and he never asked directly. He'll just uh, ask me to ask uh, the guests. Love it. It's a, it's a generative AI co-pilot, right? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure if he's too happy with uh, generative AI. He's like, I just want to be just authentic. <laughs> uh, I, I, and, can, I can tell from his face, he's not very happy right now. Yeah. Uh, so Gaurav, he's asking, uh, what are you most obsessed about outside of work these days? Yeah, I think this might be an unsatisfying answer, but like, I, there's only two things I'm really obsessed about right now. One is building a four and like that occupies so much of my brain. I think you only realize when you're a founder, it's like, you know, you're only, you may be putting 10, 12 hours in front of the computer or in meetings, but like, man, whether you're sleeping or, or working out or whatever, the, the brain's constantly just thinking about work. Right. So that's, that's a huge obsession. And partially because we feel like for us as a four, we've ourselves gone from pre-seed to series A, like we found product market fit, but there's so much, more we have to do to become a real firm uh, that matters. So that that is something obviously I'm very obsessed about. And then and then family, right? I've got two young kids, and you know they're they're growing up in a very interesting time, right? I mean, I see some of this generative AI stuff, and it's it's gonna have a meaningful impact on just exactly how the world evolves and society pans out, and what the jobs are going to be in the future, and 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 good and bad you know, impact, by the way, right, on society and like sort of how I can influence some of that, the work I do and the investments I made. And of course, just spending time with them and 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 and, and getting joy and meaning in that moment. I said those are two really big things. I am, um, and and those are probably the, the two, two big buckets, but I think that'll, you know, evolve over time. Hopefully I'll have more time to spend on, on other, other things, but right now it's the, the brain only functions in two modes. And uh, Gaurav, what's your relationship with health? Could be, you know, physical, mental, nutritional? You know, um, growing up, uh, given the generation I'm from, uh, there was definitely a lot more awareness on physical health, right? Uh, cardiovascular, especially, is like somebody from Southeast Asia, um, you know, uh, so I, I've tried to maintain a fairly decent routine. I've got a Peloton at home. That's frankly as as much as I get because given the schedule, it's hard to like. Unlike you, I don't get a time to play tennis or any of that stuff. You know, it's very much like can I get a workout in through my Peloton? That part, but that part I've known for a long time. Right, is physical health is important. I've invested in that. But over the last, I'd say, ten, fifteen years, especially since I became a venture back founder, you know, fifteen odd years ago, I've really come to appreciate the mental health part of my 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 life as well. And, and and I've realized just how important mental health is, and how uh, let relative to how important it is, how little 
focusing yet. And I think part of that is also growing up in India. I think mental health is stigmatized still. It's, it's changing, thankfully, now, but it's always been stigmatized and it's always sort of like shoved under the rug, right? And I think I was a, I was a, I was a product of that. But I think as I've realized it's a real thing, I'm actually invested in companies that support that. So I was a first lead investor in a company called Modern Health, for example, which is sold through employers as a benefit for mental health. Because I've come to realize that, you know, mental health for our generation will be what physical health was for the previous generation, where, you know, for my parents early on, like cardiovascular awareness and physical health awareness wasn't quite there. And then kind of it became became the case. I think we're going to go through a similar or we are going through a similar journey with mental health, right? Where my early years, there wasn't as much awareness, but that's going to hopefully change where over the next few decades, there's going to be as much focus put on mental health as there was on, there has been on physical health. So I've tried to, through my investments, really make an impact, right? Uh, we invested in a company recently that's helping uh, with mental health for adolescents, right? Sort of like think of like, you know, uh, youth, you know, sub kind of 25 year old, uh, 25 or sometimes sub 18 year old, especially with serious mental health issues, which is becoming worse, unfortunately, because of social media and so on and so forth. So I've made investments in that space. I try to invest myself in turn to meditation once a day. I am guilty of not always maintaining that practice, but I try to like, you know, invest in that because again, I've realized it's so important, especially you know, with our just constantly, you know, on kind of, you know, uh, brains, we're always like thinking about deals, thinking about fundraising, whatever else is going on. I think it's really important to to invest in the mental health part of it. Um, and then now, you know, all these sensors and stuff are coming, which are giving us more insights into, um, you know, into what's happening in our bodies, again, both mentally and physically. So that's, I'm very data driven. So I think that data really helps me make decisions. For example, I've, you know, I never used to drink much, but like, you know, socially one drink or whatever a week or something, but even cut that out because I noticed my recovery scores just plummet the day I have a glass of wine or the night that I have a glass of wine the next day. So yeah, I think some of that data would be obvious to you unless it was for something like a boot, for example. Um, and I'm sure we're starting to hopefully see some data similarly for mental health. I still think we have so so much lack of data on what's happening in our in our brains and our mental health hopefully that gets comes to the surface over the next decade or two and that's going to change our behavior and i want to be at the at the forefront of that very interesting you know uh, mental health to our generation is what physical health to was to our parents uh, generation and very interesting point you picked up uh, gaurav that we don't have any way to get data around mental health or what's going on in our minds. And, and I'm excited for that. If uh, something uh, or a technological thing comes around that. Love it, uh, Gaurav. I had a lot of fun chatting with you and thanks a lot for doing it. Really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. I hope it was, uh, it was helpful. Uh, thanks again for, 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 you know, really taking the time. And as I said, I'd love to, invest in more India-based companies or global companies for that matter. So if you're an early stage founder, please, uh, pretty easy to find first name at a Ford.bc or, uh, or on Twitter or LinkedIn or, you know, uh, all kinds of socials. So thanks Shiva for having me and good luck with your fund.